Please be aware that some sections of this episode of the Folklore Podcast deal with themes of suicide. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. I'm going to keep the intro to this episode a little short, please forgive me. Having taken a few days holiday, we've brought home Covid as a souvenir, and it'll save on having to edit out so many coughs. In today's episode, we enter the world of Edwardian spiritualism. My guest is author A.J. West, whose phenomenal gothic novel The Spirit Engineer is based on the true story of an engineer, William Jackson Crawford, and his investigations into an alleged spiritualist medium. I discussed the case recently with Andy, and here is our interview. So, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It's lovely to have you with us. Oh, it's it's lovely to be here. I've been looking forward to this recording for for weeks if not months actually i think mark am i right yeah you don't know no, you are absolutely right it's been it's been quite a while to set up um there was a slight delay uh whilst i waited for your book to arrive which didn't and then for the paperback version to arrive which then did um and so there we were was... playing hard. we were playing hard to get we were playing hard <laughs> to get I, i'm so... <laughs> i've been i've been kind of thinking oh i, I really want to do uh, the folklore podcast and then you checked in and said, I've not received your book yet. And it was one of those gash moments. Um, <laughs> so I'm glad I was able to send you a copy myself and make sure it happened. So um, uh, apologies for that. But I'm just I'm honestly really grateful to be here. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's great that you did manage to send one in the end because I, I was completely absorbed by this book, I must admit. And um, for, for many reasons, uh, for the subject matter, for the writing style, and we'll come on to all of this in a minute. Um, and also for the characters as as well. Um, let, let's just start um, with you as the writer first before we move on to the book. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to be writing about obscure Victorian spiritualism. Well, I, I can give you the version that uh, might engineer some sort of respect from your listeners, or I can give you the honest, honest version. Um, oh, Honesty is always good. <laughs> right, Okay. <laughs> Uh, okay, so I was a journalist for 15 years and I ended up at the BBC and I produced uh, on various programmes and then became a newsreader, a TV newsreader and reporter in um, Northern Ireland um, and then ended up leaving the BBC and ended up on a, a television programme called Big Brother um, and became a, a finalist on Big Brother after eight weeks in the infamous house and really left that experience and it's relevant to mention that because actually it really informed the book believe it or not um i left that house into a, a, a kind of a psychological storm really of of um uh a mix of depression and wild recklessness and a lack of um direction 
and, and a, a lack of a sense of who I was really, I think as a man and um, managed just about to survive. And um, then kind of yeah, worked my way through, got, got myself uh, some work as a writer freelance. And while I was going through that storm, I, I wrote The Spirit Engineer. I'd found the story about William Jackson Crawford and Kathleen Golliger when I was working still as a, a newsreader at the BBC. And it was one winter's night in Belfast. And I was watching an HBO miniseries uh, about Harry Houdini. And I, I don't know if your listeners watched it. Adrian Brody stars at, as Harry Houdini. And I, I find it, I found it um, literally a, a spellbinding series. It was brilliantly done. And I bought online while I was watching it, A Magician Among the Spirits, which is Harry Houdini's account, his own memoir of his exploits, uncovering full spiritual mediums all around the world. And I was reading that about two thirds of the way through. And he mentions in his own inimitable style, um, in passing really, that there was this Dr. Crawford in Belfast who killed himself and Houdini met him and concluded that he was mad. And, and there wasn't a great deal more detail than that. He, he didn't go and investigate Kathleen Golliger's seances, Houdini uh, himself, which is partly perhaps why this world famous investigator and uh, young spirit medium has, has largely fallen out of popular consciousness. But as soon as I read that, I thought I have to find out more about this. And so I did. I started going to public records uh, office in Northern Ireland and various other archives around the world and piecing together this extraordinary forgotten story and a, a mysterious one because Arthur Conan Doyle, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, used Kathleen Golliger and Williams' joint experiments as um, one of his main touch points in his lectures and in his essays on the veracity of uh, a spiritual mediumship. And as part of his famous falling out with Houdini, Houdini equally uh, poo-pooed uh, Crawford's experiments. When Crawford took his own life in Bangor, on uh, Picky Rocks in Bangor in Northern Ireland in 1920, Houdini concluded it was because he had realised, Crawford had realised that he'd been pawned effectively, duped by Kathleen Golliger and her family for six years on an international stage. And Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, no, no, it was his last greatest experiment to finally pass beyond the divide. It's interesting, isn't it? That um, Let's uh, explore, if we can, the story of um, William Jackson Crawford and his life. And at the same time, kind of unpick the fact of his story from perhaps the the folklore surrounding you know the spiritualism and, and the investigation that he did but also of course your own version because the spirit engineer although is based on Jackson's life and work obviously takes fictional elements as um you know many for want of a better term creative non-fiction almost but but fictional novels that work with true stories do um 
Crawford's an interesting character, isn't he? When we think about Victorian spiritualism, he's not a person who comes up generally when people discuss the subject. You know, you, you have very famous cases which come up time and again of the Fox sisters and Helen Duncan and all of these sorts of people. But William Jackson Crawford and his investigation of Kathleen Golliger is a very obscure case in many ways. Yet, as your book very ably demonstrates, because it uses a lot of the actual elements of the story, I know, is a fascinating case for many reasons. There's, there's the interplay between the people, there's the psychology of the whole thing. And I completely understand where you're coming from with, with your past experience on Big Brother here, actually, because when we look at particularly the early series of Big Brother as a concept, it was all about the psychology of, of the human beings who were taking part in it. It was essentially a televised psychological experiment. It maybe became more controversial later on. But that's kind of the reasoning behind it. So I can absolutely see how that informed your writing on this. Tell us a little bit about William Jackson Crawford's life and work and how you've used it. So William Jackson Crawford's family were originally from Scotland. They were Presbyterian and um, moved to, emigrated to New Zealand. Uh, I've already been told off for uh, pronouncing this incorrectly, but I'm going to say Dunedin. Um, where they were and then he when he reached 16 his mother seemed to die around about his uh, 16th birthday at the same point he moved back then to Scotland um, to live with his grandparents and then got himself a job at the Belfast Municipal Technical Institute as a, a, a as an engineering professor doctor of engineering as a teacher really um, and it was an amazing moment in the public records office in Northern Ireland when I was actually able to find uh, his first appearance on the staff list, how much he was paid, um, and also a reference to him being given the job and the actual job advert that was sent to the newspaper in Scotland that he answered. And, and that's, for me, as, as someone who just is obsessed with historical research, I'm not a historian, but as a historical novelist, that for me was an incredible moment that was never going to appear in the book, but I, I, it's precious to me as a little detail. So he moved to Belfast, and um, uh, I think by that point he'd already met his wife. I think he'd met uh, Elizabeth Jolly in uh, Scotland, and they moved together. They were married, and they had three children in Belfast. And it seems most likely, although it's not certain, but it seems most likely that Elizabeth was a, um, a follower of spiritualism, um, possibly before she met William. But either way, they both became spiritualists. And it's through the spiritualist church in Belfast, we conclude that we don't know for certain that they would have run into the Golliger family. And the Golliger family. Uh, were an itinerant family. They were shirt cutters, blouse cutters. In Belfast, if you were, if you were really a, absolutely kind of a working class on, on a, a tiny income, uh, you were still actually looked after better than, for instance, if you were in Birmingham or, Manche Birmingham or Manchester or Glasgow or London. It, it wasn't a slum life in uh, Edwardian Belfast in the way it was in other parts of the UK, partly because... Belfast at the time was an extraordinarily wealthy, successful city. We forget this entirely now. It, it 
was responsible for, I think I'm right saying, something like 96% of the world's linen production. It produced huge ships, famously, of course, the Titanic, but beyond the Titanic, you know, British Empire and, and the shipping around the British Empire, which was the lifeblood, came from Belfast. There was a huge amount of money sloshing around there. And so the Golliger family did move between six and seven addresses um, around Ormo Park in Belfast in the Ormo Road. Um, but they were looked after in the sense they had a house, they had a food, they had food, they had a life. What they didn't have necessarily as women, young women, and Kathleen would have found this as a young girl, is she didn't have a great deal of agency. Uh, as a young woman, she would have been expected, obviously, to become a wife and then uh, have children. And so you have this meeting of William Jackson Crawford, this very uh, straight-laced, as you say, interesting, awkward, socially awkward character uh, in his 30s, meeting this 16-year-old girl and a, um, a fascination, at least in one direction, possibly in, in both. But William Jackson Crawford, according to his contemporaries after he died, uh, I, I say with as much confidence as I can, having spoken to those who are expert in such things, these days would likely would likely be um, uh, uh, considered neurodivergent. Um, the way he was spoken about was that he was a very friendly man. He was a wildly intelligent man. He brought his scientific understanding, his mathematical expertise. He wrote books, ma uh, mathematical textbooks for schools across the UK. Um, uh, he brought that to psychical examination. Um, but what he struggled with was social interaction, uh, holding conversations, understanding other people's motivations. And one of the things I'm splurging here a little bit, but one of the things that uh, Fournier uh, said, who investigated the Golliger Circle after Crawford's death and found them to be fraudulent, was I, I just cannot I simply cannot understand how you could have investigated these people for six years and not seen very quickly that they are fraudulent. And, Does that come down to um, the, the the reason for the investigation? Is it um, because the investigation is based on needing to believe rather than trying to prove otherwise? I mean, I don't. I certainly don't want to give spoilers for your book because people absolutely need to read it from beginning to end as it unfolds to get the most from it. So I really don't want to do that. But the reason for the investigation in your book, how does that compare to the actual historical reason for Crawford wanting to investigate or work with Kathleen Golliger? It's it's it is something I had to speculate about because it's there is no definite answer to that. Why did William Jackson Crawford spend six years of his life investigating this particular spiritual medium? There are feminist academics who've written since the 1970s on this particular case, stating that it was because of uh, sexual attraction that he had to the young Kathleen Golliger. Um, Kathleen Golliger and Crawford's family both would challenge that and say that they don't believe that to be the case. Um, I personally can see evidence for it in the sense that there was some exploration of uh, Kathleen's body, but he got nurses and his wife to carry out that exploration, although he did touch her legs and her breasts during the later experiments. There was some binding involved. I think from a modern perspective, it would be difficult not to see some abuse of power in that relationship. However, um, I don't I don't see that there's enough evidence there to say that his primary purpose in those experiments was for his own sexual titillation. 
I think he had a personality that became very obsessive about detail and repetition of experiments. He obviously had some spiritualist belief. How he came to that belief is a complete mystery. Um, was it because uh, his wife was a believer? Was it because he lost his mum when he was a younger man? Was it for some other reason? Um, I, one of the things that I kind of pose in the book, although not directly, and I hope it comes across to the reader, is it, it touches on the conversation we're having at the moment about the history of uh, these phrases such as toxic masculinity and the patriarchy, and men were in charge and men had it their own way. And the flip side of that, of course, is that if you were a man who was feeling inadequate or unequal to the expectations of being a man at the time, that could be a very desperate and a very deconstructing and difficult thing to feel as though you're expected to be in charge of the world and you are simply not capable. And I, I sensed in William's letters and his essays in the articles in Light magazine, um, almost a, a desire, a, a false pomposity, if I can put it that way, an overweening confidence that belied underneath it an insecurity. And that really informed his character. I felt like I was looking at a guy who wanted to be taken seriously and be accepted by the scientific fraternity and the spiritualist fraternity for his own fragile ego. There was a desperation there. Yes, yeah. Now, Kathleen, <clears throat> she was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, around about 16 at the start of the investigation, I think that's right. Um, and we have six years worth of investigation here. Um, she is a physical medium, um, but it's very much a kind of family business, if you like, uh, she being the, the frontispiece of, of, of the, the whole uh, Golaga circle. Um, we have Crawford, who is a very intelligent uh very rational man by all accounts he he's a top class engineer mathematician as you say he's written widely on the subject and he essentially has the wool pulled over his eyes for six years by the manifestations and things that he experiences what manifestations give some examples um is he investigating um in this and and how rigorous is his investigation well he would have argued at the time and and this is us this is us um talking in terms of william jackson crawford not being complicit in fraud there was um there was a, a an investigator who is uh still to this day quite a controversial name in the history of spiritualist uh, investigation called um, uh, Dingwall, who was a darling of the scene at the start and then became a real kind of black sheep. Um, but he claimed that Crawford, just before his death, called him up on the telephone and said, it's all a lie or it's all a fraud. Um, but Dingwall is not known for being particularly trustworthy <laughs> in his telling of events and rather likes to place himself at the, the centre of any drama. So I think we take that with a pinch of salt. When, when looking at Crawford's story, as I do, I think what's more likely is that he was um, quite credulous, in fact, extremely credulous. And that was Fournier Dalb's conclusion and Houdini's conclusion. Also, I think that, that this was a man who was incapable of seeing what was right before his eyes for various reasons. And I, I, I believe perhaps his neurodivergency might have played a part in that. That is my speculation. 
uh, unqualified as it is. But um, he he brought his scientific intelligence to these experiments and his extraordinary industry to these experiments in the sense that he carried out endless weighing of the medium just weighed her and weighed her and weighed her and weighed her he weighed her he weighed her before there were um, spirit manifestations during and after he he kept exhaustive lists and tables and charts that he'd report back on and then he'd do it again and then he'd do it again and then he would do it again i i, I can imagine kathleen finding it all rather exhausting frankly uh, but i suppose if it's either that or blouse cutting for for however many hours a day then perhaps it's preferable but i mean my goodness me um and and through these experiments, they became, I think, more and more wild, really. And you can see this in the photographs that were taken uh, in in the latter experiments in the last uh, four, five, six years. Um, you have basically lengths of cheesecloth appearing from her skirt and from between her ankles. And you can see pictures of this on my website, ajwestauthor.com. You can see some of the pictures. Um, and what he called ectoplasmic rods. That's what they were. So this is the birth really of ectoplasm. So you had Eva C in Paris, who was probably the most famous uh, physical manifestation spiritualist medium who 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 was um, former presidents were coming out of her mouth um, in balloons of ectoplasm with faces on them which bore a striking resemblance to people who've been in magazines recently. Um, <laughs> funnily enough. Um, uh, whereas Kathleen Golliger didn't do that, but you had these uh, ectoplasmic rods. And what William Jackson Crawford did, he had his, he had his kind of Galileo moment when he realised that the reason why tables and chairs were lifting was because using his, um, uh, his engineering expertise, that there were particular... Um, uh, um, transfers of of um of energy going down to the floor and then bouncing up at certain right angles underneath the table with kind of almost like tulip headed squelchy pads mm -hmm. that would then fix themselves to a particular object and lift them up and move them around and that ectoplasmic rod which if i, I hope this is okay to say on the folklore podcast um does does have more than a passing resemblance in his description to an erect penis um then um it comes out of kathleen's skirt or out of her breast or out of where uh, out of her anus or her, her, her vagina and lifts a table up and so he'd weigh, weigh her and he'd find that her weight would go down a little bit and that would be the the um, manifestation of this ectoplasmic matter it's 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 extraordinary and mind-bending even more so when you look at the photographs and it is quite obviously cheesecloth um but the pad at the end, the tulip sticky type pad that I mentioned, um, was proven how because there was a, a saucer of putty put under the table, and the the pad uh, the, the the tip of this rod was pressed into the putty. It's very difficult to talk about this without sounding uh, rather sexual. Uh, the tip would press into this putty, um, and and funnily enough, it bore more than a passing resemblance to someone's heel. Uh, but the reason it had the uh, William Jackson Crawford claimed the reason it had what you might recognize as the the warp and weft of a stocking on it is because the ectoplasm had to press through the stocking to get to the putty in the saucer. 
and therefore it had left an imprint or an impression of the stocking there and that was the explanation it it really beggars belief and it really stretches the imagination even if we're people who who absolutely believe in spiritual mediumship as fournier de al did he, he'd, he'd come back from investigating Ava C and decided she was absolutely bona fide. Absolutely. She's a real spiritual medium. Even he came to investigate Kathleen Golliger and said, this is absurd. But I, we look at it, don't we, now with different eyes to how it was being looked at at the time. Spiritualism was enjoying a, a massive growth. The belief in spiritualism was very high. Arguably, there are lots of reasons, the First World War being one, why people want to believe. So is the kind of, is there a position where people just can't accept anything other than belief and, and therefore whatever happens, they will find an explanation for it rather than that explanation being it's fraudulent, do you think? Yeah, I don't know. Um, you, you might know better than me, actually. Your listeners most most certainly will. I don't know when the phrase Occam's razor appeared in uh, the public consciousness. Um, uh, quite early, I think, but I would have to look it up. <laughs> it's a, well, it's a good pub quiz question. Um, but you know, the 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 simplest the simplest explanation is probably the the right one. Um, yes a spiritualist investigation is the opposite of occam's razor it really is the antithesis it's like we will go to the ends of the earth to 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 find a, an explanation for something that could be explained rather simply and i think the justification for that is well it's the just justification of anything that is based on belief rather than tangible known fact is that you know faith has its own uh, weight and its own veracity and um, if you're bringing scientific investigation or exploration to a matter of faith, then you you have to expect the explanations and you have to expect the science to bend mm. because because it is it is in its in its very existence anti-scientific. You know, if we talk about God, religion and spiritualism is was a religion um, it it's not supposed to fit with science, I think, is often the starting point. So, so if science has to bend to fit with this belief system, then that's actually perfectly natural and understandable. And it is the weak and cowardly professor of engineering who allows common sense to get in the way of an explanation for an eptoplasmic rod, rod mm. lifting a stool out of a 16 year old uh, girl's body. Um, even though the seances were held above a hardware shop filled with springs and pulleys and magnets and, you know, wires and everything you could possibly imagine as a box of tricks to to kind of carry out these experiments. And I loved reading Harry Houdini's A Magician Among the Spirits, some of the tricks that would go on with false heels in boots that were sprung to make tapping noises and hooks hidden on the side of uh, shoes so you could hook them into a table and do all sorts of amazing things with them. Um but just to pick up on what you're saying, I, I have um, I have my own theory about spiritualism and why it became um, such a phenomenon at that point after the Fox sisters right into, say, the 1920s is, um, yes, the First World War played a part in it and the Spanish flu played a part in it. Absolutely. Uh, mortality was was there front and center for people. We were surrounded by it. It was in the atmosphere. Absolutely. But there are many cases in the past where that's been the case if you look at the english civil war killed far more people 
than the First World War did. Um, if you look at uh, Samuel Pepys's diaries when he's writing about um, the, the, you know, the plague, um, again, you don't have spiritualism. What was the thing that changed from a religious belief, uh, a traditional religious belief, a Christian belief or a Muslim belief or, you know, to, to spiritualism? And I think the difference is, is uh, for me, two things. First of all, it's technological. Um, and secondly, it's it's uh, secularism. So it's it's science is kind of chipping away at traditional religion to the point where people are starting to to doubt it more and more at this point. It's been you know it's very difficult to believe in some of the traditional teachings of the Bible um, because of the scientific um, uh, breakthroughs that are being made. But also technological. If you can pick up a receiver and hear the voice of someone on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. Then uh, and you can fly and you can go to you know some of the deepest parts of the ocean. Why the hell should you not be able to talk to the dead? Suddenly, things that would have been seen as completely impossible are now possible, and so the 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 solid structures that sit between our understanding of the living and the afterlife are themselves starting to bend and oscillate and become transparent. And I I, I think that's fascinating. And add to that finally. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, I think 50 years earlier even, would have been wearing a pith helmet marching into some deepest, darkest jungle to discover some new tribe or would have been marching across, you know, um, some icy landscape to go to somewhere no human being has charted before or no Western human being has charted before. We're at a point now where I think those men with that attitude, with the kind of uh, the lust for exploration were, were left confounded i think by the fact that there weren't really any blank spaces left on the land masses on on maps um here be monsters wasn't it i think they used to mm. write <laughs> yes where you didn't know and 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 i think that must have been very frustrating and so it's i don't think it's any coincidence that when arthur conan Doyle talks about the afterlife he doesn't call it the afterlife uh he calls it summer land it's like he's wanting to plant an arthur conan Doyle flag into the afterlife as a new continent that he has discovered um it's you could almost call it paranormal um uh colonialism you know <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting theory and and yeah i think there's probably a lot of mileage in that for sure um Conan Doyle, of course, is another example, isn't he, of, of, of somebody who everybody now goes, well, this is a highly intelligent individual. How was he conned by these people? It's easy to say with hindsight. It's easy to say now. But unless you were there in the period, it's not so straightforward, perhaps, to understand the whole psychological dynamic behind all of this. I want to talk for a little moment about Crawford as a narrator. Uh, now, your book uses Crawford first person to tell this story. And it's very easy to become um, unfriendly towards Crawford quite quickly at uh, some points in, in your book. Crawford is the epitome for me in the spirit engineer of an unreliable narrator. I, I think I said to you um uh, off air a few days ago that that he reminded me very much in your writing <clears throat> of the way that um, Sarah Waters portrays the doctor in The Little Stranger 
as an unreliable narrator. You just you you don't know how much you as a reader are being gaslit by Crawford as a narrator. I'm sure from your perspective that that's absolutely intentional, obviously, but how does that compare to Crawford's actual writing? Is Crawford an unreliable narrator in your story, or is he an unreliable narrator full stop? I guess I guess we'll never know really. I mean it's it's wonderful to hear any comparison with Sarah Waters because I, I she's she's a huge inspiration to me. I I read Affinity and uh, many like years ago and thought wouldn't it be extraordinary to tell a story like that. Um and uh, so you know to have any comparison with her her characters is is a huge compliment. Um I reading Crawford's essays they're rather dry, they're very repetitive. They're quite pompous and dismissive of other uh, investigators, amateur investigators, and I, I got a sense from him that he was confident in his experiments, but he was almost overcompensating. I think for the, for the fact that he really couldn't back up some of the claims that he was making, and and I do think he was aware of that. But he was aware of that in the sense that, well, in that case, I'll do another hundred weighing experiments you know it wasn't i can't back it up therefore perhaps i'm wrong um you know there was a there was a, a determination there to to prove himself right um so i don't think he's an unreliable narrator in the sense that he's sincere and i, I think you know with my novel as you go through as a, a reader you have um you have different choices you can make about about William as you go through. You know, do you think he's an unreliable narrator in the sense that he's in on something? And is that going to be the twist? Is it that he's not in on it and other people are, are faking the phenomena? Is that going to be a twist? Um, is the phenomena real? Is that the twist? You know, is it this person? I, I, I set out to write the book, actually, as someone who I, I love a uh, kind of closed room mystery, a locked room mystery and uh, Agatha Christie style murder mystery and things. I, I almost wanted to blend the two, whereas you're reading through, you have these suspects sitting around a table. And I want the reader to think, well, of these people, of these recurring characters, what really is going on? And so instead of a murder, you have a manifestation. Um, and at the end, I give my own, well, it's not one twist, it's about three or four, I think, um, but I, it's a very twisty ending, um, but I hope satisfying uh, and I won't I won't ruin anything. But I, I think um, in reality, my best bet is that William was a, a mentally unwell man. Well, we've, we know he was mentally unwell because actually his wife says in his um, a coroner's inquest that he, he was mentally unwell at the end and couldn't sleep and had terrible headaches and was basically going through a particular, particularly manic phase. Um, but he, uh, I, I think in real life, I don't think he was an unreliable narrator. He was an unreliable investigator. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair to say. Um, in your book, you have him embarking on uh, a speaking tour. That was obviously something which, which happened a lot in Victorian and the Edwardian period, a, a, along with um, kind of the growth of, of museums and public lectures generally and these sorts of things did that speaking to actually take place or uh is that purely your own invention because i know there was one planned wasn't there 
Yes, you've done. You've really done your research. I'm impressed. That's great. Um, yeah, absolutely. He'd he'd so he'd given speeches in um, or presentations in Dublin, and uh, he had. I believe I'm right in saying, gosh, this is going back to my research now from about two years ago. But I believe I'm right in saying he did appear at Queen's Hall, which is now by the Langham Hotel, uh, where where the BBC Broadcasting House is. Um, it was knocked down. Um, so yes, that did happen. He was planning. He was he was being sent really on a speaking tour of the United States, and uh, so William, right, I think, saying or was it was it Gao, the editor of Light, one of his contemporaries anyway, wrote afterwards that uh, one of the reasons why he had a mental breakdown was because he was someone who was very socially awkward and was not a natural performer, did not enjoy audiences. And the mental strain of um, the fear, frankly, of, of standing in front of people and going on this tour was partly what sent him into a, a downward spiral psychologically that, that ultimately ended with his, with his tragic suicide. Um, and you can look at that two ways. Houdini would have said, well, the reason why he didn't want to go on an international tour is because increasingly at this point you had... Um, uh, uh, one uh, guy called Beadnell, another one was a guy called McCabe, um, each of whom had published their own satirical uh, pamphlets, basically laughing at Crawford and his experiments and mocking him publicly, saying what an absolute idiot and pulling apart his experiments with lateral thinking that wasn't even particularly advanced. So, for instance, you have, uh, you know, um, why can why why is it the darkest point of the room always has to be the exact point where Kathleen Golliger's legs are? Um, you know how can you say you control uh, all possibility of false materializations when the only person you're actually controlling at any one point is Kathleen Golliger and she's got her sister sitting on one side, her mother sitting on the other side. Um, uh, Morrison, who was the leader of the uh, circle, sitting on the opposite side of the table, all of which could be complicit. And actually, Fournier, in his investigation, came, came, that, came up with that exact conclusion. He saw Kathleen Golliger lifting a foot with her foot, a stool with her foot, forgive me, and uh, Mr Morrison was leaning across the light of the lamp just so the light would shine directly in Fournier's eyes at the opportune moment. Um, and and so that you know crawford i think at the point when he took his own life could not have been um in any way ignorant of the fact that he was increasingly looking rather foolish um i think that's a more realistic explanation of why he decided to take his own life rather than simply he was nervous about speaking in front of audiences because after all he was a lecturer Yes, yes, absolutely. I think it, it is just a, a, a sad end to a difficult case, isn't it? Um, you compliment me on doing my research, but of course I am referring to your website for a lot of this because your research into this case is indeed very thorough. Uh, I will link to Andy's website uh, on the episode page for this episode of the Folklore Podcast. So you can go and look for yourselves because honestly there is a lot in there Um to explore in terms of the background behind this case, and it's absolutely a good place to do it. What happened to the Golligers' real life at the end of all this? Well, that is, that is a mystery in its own right. Um, Kathleen Golliger, after William's death, continued to uh, act as a spiritual medium. She allowed herself to be investigated by uh, Fournier d'Albe, as I've said, 
Um, it went on for about six weeks until it became clear that this guy was actually, frankly, catching them out. And then suddenly uh, people became poorly and Kathleen's letters become really quite spiky. And it's clear that they basically have a massive row one day in the attic. Uh, in a very Edwardian sense, their their correspondence is is polite, but it's about as rude as you can possibly get in an Edwardian letter. <laughs> um, if swear words could be exchanged, they they certainly would have been. Um, so then it goes a little bit quiet, and then when Kathleen's in her thirties, she's persuaded to again carry out some uh, more investigations into her own to 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 prove the veracity of her spiritual mediumship. And you have these kind of chicken wire cages around her feet, and um, people are holding her elbows to make sure she's not moving her arms because obviously if your elbows are touched that you can't possibly move your fingers um <laughs> and it, that was a revelation for me when i went to the cambridge manuscripts archive and i uncovered this folder um i didn't uncover i mean i found it in the archive and they brought it out for me um this folder of of photographs and correspondence from from the experiments particularly the later ones and it, it, there it was, like a thunderbolt. You had Kathleen Gulliger sitting on a chair with ectoplasm between her feet. And then if you looked very closely at the picture uh, and they'd done a blown up version of it and uh, uh, changed the exposure, you can see a bit of twine going between her jumper and her skirt and then down the inside of her leg to her heels. And that bit of twine is what would have been attached to the so-called ectoplasm. And she would have, it would have been pulled out by another one of the sitters and then she would have pulled it back up again when the lights when the lights went out. So I think if you need a smoking gun, that picture certainly is it. it incidentally, by the way, uh, in that packet, they also had a bit of uh, satin folded up in an envelope. And I took it to the desk and I said, there's no reference in the file contents as to what this is. Um, and with a little bit of looking through their, their, their own system, they said, oh, no, that's actually in the wrong file. That is a piece of material that was found. Um, I'm just going to have to say it as it was um, rolled up inside Helen Duncan's vagina during an investigation of Helen Duncan. Um, I don't know whether it was washed and tumble dried, this particular piece of material, but uh, <laughs> there it was. And so the investigation has actually taken me to some of the more famous cases that you mentioned at the start there. And I thought mm. I ought to mention that, but um, so that's in the Cambridge manuscripts archive. If anyone wants to go and see it. Um, uh, so uh, where was I? Yes. So Kathleen Gulliger then um, had, she had her own children and suddenly after her thirties, suddenly then her entire spiritualist life, uh, her, 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 her mediumship, disappears without a trace and when i say without a trace almost entirely without a trace there's no mention of it there's no discussion of it there's no dabbling of it after a few sherries on a saturday night mm. um there's no religious belief at all not not christian or you know in any in any way even to the point that when kathleen Golliger passes away um i believe she was in her 70s of uh she she had breast cancer and she passed away and her granddaughter who i'm in touch with and you can see her on my website the granddaughter talking about it um it wasn't mentioned on her deathbed or in her last last weeks it's okay i know that there is another side i know that i'm going to the afterlife because by the way have i mentioned that houdini knows who i am and sir arthur conan doyle wrote about me um it just simply was never mentioned 
And the only remnant of Kathleen Golliger's past is that wherever she lived, in the houses she lived, she called her house Nakoma, N-A-C-O-M-A, which is an aberration of um, a first-generation American, a Native American uh, chief who, I don't know if, sorry, apologies if I've not used the right terminology there, because I think it, it's, it's changed recently. But anyway, uh, I'm going to say Native American chief who um, was called Nakoma, and that was her spirit guide. It doesn't appear in my book, but her spirit guide was Nakoma. So that would be the spirit who would appear in seances and guide her um, in, in various paranormal uh, manifestations. And so she, she, she chose to call her house such an important name linked to her spiritualism. But other than that, didn't talk to anyone about it. And there was a small cardboard box that was found at the bottom of her wardrobe by her granddaughter that had some photographs in it that are not anywhere in any archive in the world and are not uh, on the internet apart from on my website because uh, I've been given permission to, to use a couple of them. Um, but for me to sit on the outskirts of Belfast and actually hold in my hand those photographs that Kathleen Golliger had kept all her life, I just wanted to, I was so, I, I, I was so desperately sad that it hadn't been possible for her family to sit down with her and break through that feeling of awkwardness and discomfort and just say to her what happened what happened really yeah yeah no one, but no one did it, it it is a shame it really is a shame and it just goes to show how difficult a subject it can be to deal with in many ways you know even for very close relatives what what do the um Golliger and Crawford relatives think of your treatment of this have, have they enjoyed the the take that you've used for the story they're pleased uh thank goodness mm -hmm. i was worried about it I, I felt you know when they got in touch with me via my website uh out of the blue i didn't i didn't make actually effort to contact them because frankly i didn't think there was any hope that i would be able to mm. um I got emails from them from both sides and uh, I was very nervous about it because I suddenly thought, my goodness, these are people, particularly with um, uh, Catherine, who's Kathleen Golliger's granddaughter, was was kind of looked after by Kathleen Golliger as a little girl and has living memory of this woman who she holds in very high regard. And I thought, my goodness, this is, you know, I don't want to cause offence. I don't want to besmirch anyone's good name. She's very happy with the telling of Kathleen and feels as though it's, it's you know, very respectful of her grandmother because she, it, she is a mystery. And likewise, Crawford's family knew him. It was family folklore, um, appropriate enough for your podcast, it's family folklore that he was a very strange man, that there was some degree of family shame, that his legacy was by far and away a negative one. Uh, it was an embarrassment. Uh, the family had been content uh, without being too critical of them, but they've been content for him to lie in an unmarked grave for over a hundred years. Um, and one of the most fascinating things for me was finding out from Crawford's descendants, two spurs of which, one of which had gone to Australia and one of which was in the UK, that the, the, the UK family thought that he had shot himself, I think I'm right in saying, and the Australian um, uh, wing of the family thought that he'd drowned, walked into a lake and drowned himself, neither of which is accurate. And so I was able to say to them, no, actually, here's his coroner's report. Here's the inquest. Here's his death certificate. It was potassium cyanide poisoning. He did. He killed himself in an extremely violent 
mm. and deliberate fashion. Um, and uh, I think it, I think his wife and his children deliberately protected the kids and future generations from the truth of what happened because it was so so shameful at the time to them, but also so desperately sad and painful that um, that they wanted to try and make out that it was something in some small way tidier. Um, but no, they're happy. And I, I'm very proud to say on the, on the 30th of July, 2022, if people are listening to this uh, beyond that, um, there will be a plaque at last on his grave marking his final resting place. After over 100 years, I'm flying over to Belfast to meet with his descendants who are also flying over and Kathleen's granddaughter to stand around the empty patch of grass where he's been for the last hundred years and, and lay a plaque at last, uh, just, you know, not to, not to aggrandize him because there are those who would be very questionable. I think of his motivations, uh, motivation, but just to, just to notify and, and to acknowledge his, where he is and who he was. That's, that's good to hear though. It is, it is good to hear. And I shall look forward to hearing more about that. The case of William Jackson Crawford uh, and Kathleen Golliger is an obscure one, yet it is absolutely fascinating and intriguing and important to the world of spiritualism at that time. Uh, the Spirit Engineer does great things to highlight that case, uh, but it is also a, a wonderful fictionalised telling of it as well. I. I absolutely was drawn into this book and I can't recommend it highly enough. So I would encourage people listening, if you haven't read it, to get hold of a copy. It's available in hardback and now paperback and also audiobook from places from which you can purchase books. Uh, you can get it online. You can get it in an independent bookshop. Always a good place to get a book. Uh, you can get it from very many places. Please absolutely do so. What's next for you now? You're working on something else. What can you tell us about it? Well, I'm working on a book set uh, rather unoriginally, actually, for historical fiction at the moment in uh, Georgian London. I think there's, there's a, a, a healthy dollop of Georgian London historical fiction <laughs> over the last five years. But I like to think that I'm exploring a a part of a hidden world within Georgian London that is, is absolutely uh, documented in the archives of the Old Bailey. So I'm spending my time delving into that um, and exploring some real life stories, uh, a kind of subversive, hidden and extremely dangerous underworld uh, that existed uh, in, in 1700s London. And I'm loving that because when I was a kid, one of the first uh, moments when I was at school that I, I really felt myself transported back in time and what a thrill that was was uh, when we were learning about uh, old London and London Bridge and I remember looking at an image of old London Bridge with those shops and tottering houses leaning out over the cataracts of the roaring Thames and I remember thinking as a kid what I wouldn't give to go back there and and for me writing historical fiction has been a way to go back in time to climb into a time machine and and explore and i would very much recommend if any listeners are the same and enjoy exploring um uh, our, our, our incredible past in the eyes of others 
um, Ned Ward's A London Spy is the most amazing travel guide written by a guy in the early 1700s. And he will take you to Westminster Abbey uh, to see a, a model of Charles the First, I believe, or Charles the Second, that's still there, by the way, a waxwork. He'll take you to the Lions at the Tower of London and he will take you over London Bridge and he will explain and describe exactly what the sights and sounds and smells were. So for me to be able to go back in time in the library every day and write this book is, is really, really special. And that's what I'm working on. I can't be more specific at the moment because I'm told that uh, it's it's not unknown for uh, other historical novelists to steal story ideas and write them far quicker. Far, 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 far more quickly than I'd be capable, <laughs> and uh, and so I'm under strict instruction not to go into too much detail. It's a thing that happens, and and we absolutely understand that. Uh, but you do, in the spirit engineer, and I'm sure you will in this next novel as well, uh, paint uh, a wonderful picture of of our historical past uh which does come alive off the page and um i shall look forward to seeing uh what happens in the next book in due course in the meantime andy thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk about the spirit engineer and william jackson crawford no thank you very much and anyone who does uh, want to reach out to me i'm on aj west author on all social media and i i do love chatting to people i will put links to all of the places uh on the episode page uh, on the Folklore Podcast website for this episode, so you can go and explore the research into this case in more detail and indeed get in touch and do some social media stuff. Thank you so much. Thanks to Andy for discussing his research into the fascinating life of William Jackson Crawford. I really recommend reading a copy of The Spirit Engineer, which is available in both hardback and recently published paperback from all good bookshops. Other formats are available online. You can also read much of Andy's research on his website at ajwestauthor.com. You'll find links on the Folklore Podcast website page for this episode and in the show notes. The Folklore Podcast is the official podcast of the Folklore Library and Archive. Our whole network of folklore-based work, collecting and preserving materials for the future, is run voluntarily and all of our content is free. If you can give us any help in an increasingly difficult climate in which to operate, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast or make a small donation via our website. Without you, we cannot keep providing the content that we hope you enjoy. Thank you for listening. See you next time. <laughs>